The winningest team in baseball also has the most saves, and people who save the most money are winners. So start earning saves by investing in worthy bonds for only $10 each. These bonds earn a fixed 7% APY, and there's no fees, penalties, or minimum balance required, and they can be redeemed whenever you like. You can even round up everyday purchases to buy additional bonds. Go to worthybonds.com backslash save. That's worthybonds.com backslash save and save and win. It's time to face the music. It's your day in court with a people's lawyer, Bruce Hagan, and attorney Ray Judice. This is your day in court with Bruce Hagan and Ray Judice. My name is Tug Coward. You're listening to Extra 1063. If you need legal help, the best minds in the city of Atlanta and maybe even around the country are sitting in this studio with me today. How can you get their help if you need them? Bruce? That is some high praise, and thank you for that. So, uh, yeah, Bruce Hagan. I handle all kinds of personal injury cases, so whatever it might be. Hagen-Law.com is the website. You can call me, 404-522-7553. There's always somebody there answering the phone, can get you right to me. You can email me, Bruce at Hagen-Law.com. Also, Bruce at BikeLaw.com, because helping injured bicyclists is one of the things that is kind of a niche practice for us and something that I can truly say we do better than anybody. There you go, right? 404-964-4185 is my my cell number. Hope everyone had a great holiday. Uh, we're getting some of the post-Thanksgiving uh, DUI cases, and people say, really, on Thanksgiving? And yes, this is what happens. Honey, can you run down to the QT and get some evaporated milk? I'll be right back. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> so we get a bunch of those cases. Yeah. And if we can be of any help on that type of a case or anything else, give us a call. All right. So we'll start out with a, uh, a case that's getting a lot of attention because of so many celebrities and really high net worth people involved. And that is the Ghislaine Maxwell case and trial that's going on uh, in New York. Uh, she is on trial for basically uh, facilitating Jeffrey Epstein and his uh, you know, alleged addiction to sex and, and specifically underage girls and, and how she you know put Put them together. She was the ringleader. I, I guess that's what you am I am I describing that well? Well, I think um, you are describing it well, and and basically she's accused of assisting um, in Epstein's heinous plot by recruiting young girls to come to Epstein Island and and to Epstein's private mansions and uh, helping to groom them to kind of prepare them for the mind control that went along with the physical aspect of this. She was just right in the mix, and she was essentially pimping for Jeffrey Epstein to go bring him uh, these young girls that he would then abuse sexually and then I think she also is accused of facilitating in paying off the girls and, and sometimes their families to keep them quiet. So, yeah, she's right in the middle of it and um, has been in jail for a very long time uh, because she is so wealthy herself and is um, internationally connected that she presented a huge that she might disappear and never come back to the United States. So she's been sitting in jail all through COVID, all through this time, um, just waiting for her day in court, uh, as is the name of our show. Um, I really don't know the specifics about her lawyers, but I have no doubt that the lawyers representing her are the finest criminal lawyers that you're going to find in the state of New York, if not the entire world, outside of Ray Judice sitting right across from me. Let's go. So uh, I'm I'm looking forward to a vigorous defense. They're expecting this trial to last six weeks or so, and that she is anticipated to testify. So it'll be really interesting. Yeah, Bruce has touched on so many many great 
topics, subtopics here. And one is that this is essentially a sex trafficking case under federal law. She's being prosecuted in the federal court in New York City, one of the four different federal courts there. And these are federal charges because the, the young girls were brought over interstate lines. Mm-hmm. And that, that goes back to the old Man Act, believe it or not, of like 1909 that various folks were prosecuted on back in the day. Um, it's a prostitution case. It's a high celebrity profile case. There's, you know, sex and drugs and rock and roll and name dropping. But at the end of the day, the issue is, did, did Miss Maxwell recruit these young girls and when we're talking young we're talking 14 14. 15 year old girls that look like they're 14 and 15 year old girls not that that's a defense uh did she groom them now now that's a real term of art in the prosecution of of some sexual cases for predators they generally start out innocently it's someone that's inside the circle or someone that the family trusts Quite frankly, it's folks in the religious you know, world or teaching world or coaching. We've seen all these cases come out of the various universities where we've yeah. got different swim coaches. And, and Michigan State. Exactly right. So it starts from a relationship of trust and then the relationship between the groomer, the enabler, in this case allegedly Miss Maxwell, and the young child, the young girl starts. And then she sort of passes the baton, passes the child off to hear the predator uh, Epstein. Now, there's all kinds of allegations, very salacious about what her, Miss Maxwell's involvement was in some of the sexual interaction. Uh, that That's relevant, of course, but it's not all that relevant to why the case is being prosecuted, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Uh, a couple other things that Bruce brought up. You know, I, I was amazed. I was watching a um, TV news station a few nights ago after the the young man that shot the two kids up in Kyle Wisconsin. Thank you. And they were amazed, some of the, the tele teletalkers that the defense had done mock trials and they were shocked shocked that this could happen well that's what's happening in this case as bruce touched upon miss maxwell is an individual of enormous means uh she may have friends with even more enormous financial means she's got the best legal counsel possible they've done mock trials they've tested out different themes of how do you try this case they are as prepared for appeals as any group of lawyers are going to be so this is going to be a knockdown drag out fight yeah, and you talk about mock trials. Uh, that's something that people may not understand or realize what it is and how it works. But frequently, um, in any um, trial of significance, and we, we've done this many times in my practice, um, you will go and try to just bring in folks who are representative of what you expect a jury would be like, not for the purpose of really seeing, okay, are they going to find in the criminal case not guilty or, or guilty, or in a civil case, how much money are they going to come back with? But really, what themes resonate with them? How, how best to, to phrase an argument? You know, what, what offends people? What doesn't offend people? And, and what motivates people? And, and you get feedback fr- from that. And you try to do it in a very neutral way um, where you're not too passionately advocating, but just neutrally presenting it out there and getting a sense of, all right, you know, this theme seems to work with people. This mm-hmm. one doesn't. And and then by the time you get to trial, you have honed it down. And that's what, you know, when I heard at the um, trial of the three men who ended up convicted for killing Ahmad Aubrey, um, the comments by the defense lawyer in closing argument about the you know, long, nasty toenails. Yeah, what was right? the, what in the and, world? And I think, you know, where does that come from? And the first thought I had was, this comes from a theme developed in, in a mock trial that they believe triggers certain racist thoughts that that you can get 
in front of a jury and create a perception in a way that you could never have done through question witnesses or putting in any evidence, but it's something that they could touch on that will, it, it's, it's like, you know, we refer to it as a, as a dog whistle. Okay. And, and, and that was the only thing I think, like, where did that come yeah, from? I have an alternative response to that, and I, and I don't disagree with what you're saying. I thought she could have taken that argument about the toenails to say, you know, athletes and runners don't have long toenails because uh, you break your toenails, it's uncomfortable. Got it. Athletes and runners take care of their toenails and drop it there yeah. that, mm-hmm. to, to defeat the prosecution's argument that right. he was just a kid, he loved jogging. to run, he was yeah. in a neighborhood jogging. Well, maybe he's not a jogger. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's how I came at it, Bruce. It was so poorly presented that no matter, there was no juror that didn't fold their arms and cross their legs when they heard that. But at least that, what you're saying kind of makes sense. Well, I'm Judice. Well, I know that. I get it. That's exactly right. (laughs) But like when when I heard it, much like what Bruce is saying, I was like, what? Well, that wasn't tested. So that's the difference in having enormous resources. So when I was a baby lawyer, I had a great mentor, um, Mr. Lake Rumsey, who has passed away. And Lake was a fantastic old school trial lawyer. I remember Lake. You, you he remember wrote Lake. a book on uh, he did. trial lawyer. He did. did. And was, uh, uh, Rumsey and Ramsey or Ramsey and Rumsey. That's right. And uh, e- Lake, uh, who was a, a highly decorated world uh, Vietnam veteran, is, by the way, and is buried here in, in the Marietta. God bless him for yes, service. Sir. And uh, he would, in the old school days, just talk to everybody. And, of course, he was a talker. He talked to the mailman. He talked to the janitor. He talked to the guy changing the tire and test out themes of the case. Ah. And because he was such a great storyteller, and I think that's a word that we use as lawyers, but maybe maybe the public doesn't want to hear about it. But when we're trying a case, we're telling a story. Right. And that's why there's themes, and that's why you want to test not only the ones that work, but the ones that don't work, like the long, dirty toenails. I'll give you an example, too. And again, we're, we're, maybe we're getting off track from uh, Ms. Right. Maxwell's trial, yeah, but, but the, the focus group thing. Um, we had a case where uh, representing a police officer badly injured uh, brain injury, and one of the after effects was that he lost his sense of smell. And, and losing his sense of smell also affected his sense of taste. And so... We, you know, you talk about this focus grouping. Everybody I talk to, it's like, what would bother you if you couldn't smell? Like, what would you lose? And I've got feedback from so many people on this, right? And I created an enormous list, and there are a lot of resources on there. Pizza, prime example. For me, it's all food related. Yeah, yeah, for sure. sure. Right. But you know, for for this particular guy, it's like, you know, I love the smell of my wife's perfume. And, oh, yeah. and and not being able to smell that is something I really miss. Well, we started focus grouping this issue of smell, and for some people, it it was meaningless to them, and right. and it had nothing to do with food. And for other folks, it was like, are you kidding me? As soon as I leave this group, we're here right now. I'm going to go to this barbecue place yeah. up the street, yeah. uh, and and. I'm going to smell it from like a mile away and it's yeah. just going to get me yeah. so excited for yeah. the lunch I'm about to have. And for other folks, it was like, what's the difference if you lose your sense of smell? You can still go to work. You can still do your job. It, yeah. that, that doesn't really ring the bell. Well, for this guy as a police officer, he says, I can't smell odor of alcohol on people's breath. Mm-hmm. I can't smell marijuana. marijuana. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they, I can't smell a weapon has just been <laughs> yeah, discharged. Right. Oh, these yeah. are exactly yeah, exactly. Right. You're hitting it on the head. And, and he's like, it, it, it's, it affects me even being able to do my job if I don't have uh, 
my sense of smell as yeah. I'm as I'm out here trying to invest. So, but we can bring this back to Maxwell. So, what her lawyers have done is, what is the story? Even though the defense doesn't even have to put up a case, but you can still put up your story in opening statement and the way you cross-examine the prosecution's witness to say, "Hey, the guy that's bad is dead. He was so bad that either the prisoners at Rikers killed him, or he was so bad he killed himself. She's just innocent. She got caught up in it. They had a remote romantic relationship." Etc. That's that to me. That's the theme that they're going to use, and if they are, they've tested it. Goodness gracious! So many layers, and that's the interesting thing about this show: just being able to get into the minds of someone who's tried cases and been part of the legal system for many, many years, just like Bruce and Ray have. When we come back, Jesse Smollett is on trial. What is that trial all about? How will it uh, shape out, or how will it shape up, and uh, what will happen in the end? We'll discuss it next on Your Day in Court here on Extra 106.3. The winning team in baseball also has the most saves and people who save the most money are winners so start earning saves by investing in worthy bonds for only ten dollars each these bonds earn a fixed seven percent apy and there's no fees penalties or minimum balance required and they can be redeemed whenever you like you can even round up everyday purchases to buy additional bonds go to worthybonds.com backslash save that's worthybonds.com backslash save and save and win Hey everybody, Buck Blue here, and as a recent customer of Jim Ellis Automotive and a longtime friend of the Vice President, Stacey Ellis, man, I know Jim Ellis Automotive Group takes pride in being a family-owned and operated business. I saw it firsthand. When Stacey's granddad, Jim Ellis, founded the company back in 71, his goal was to treat every customer like family by offering a car buying experience that was both easy and fully transparent. And it worked. 50 years later, Stacy's dad, Jimmy Ellis, grew the organization to become Georgia's largest family-owned and operated automotive group. And today, third-generation family members like Stacy, along with more than 1,700 dedicated team members, are working hard to uphold the values Jim Ellis Automotive was founded on. And that's why Jim Ellis has been around for over 50 years. Enjoy the advantages of buying your next vehicle from a family-owned and operated dealership. Visit JimEllis.com or stop by any of their 20 20 dealerships located throughout Metro Atlanta. Jim Ellis Automotive, where you can always expect the best. This is your day in court with Bruce Hagan and Ray Judice on Extra 1063. Welcome back to your day in court with Bruce Hagan and Ray Judice on Extra 1063. My name is Tug Cowart. We appreciate you spending time with us. If you ever miss a show, and these are always so entertaining because you get an inside look at how the legal system works, which most people don't have any idea because you don't deal with it very much. I mean, the most I've ever dealt with it's with a traffic ticket. I mean, that's the extent of my uh, experience with the legal system in the state of Georgia and in, in America, for that matter. Uh, so if you ever miss one, you can... Uh, if you ever miss one, you can listen to them in podcast form at extra1063.com, at thepodcastpark.com, or wherever you download your podcast. Just search for Your Day in Court with Bruce Hagan and Ray Judice. The story we're going into this time is about Jesse Smollett, the actor who is accused and on trial for allegedly staging a hate crime against himself which is a, an odd thing to, uh, to cook up if, if it is in case, indeed the case, which there's uh, seemed to be at least a little bit of evidence that it may have happened because there's the, the check that was written to two brothers who were supposed to be the aggressors in this, uh, in, in this hate crime. 
and they have said, you know what, he paid us to do it, and we want no part of it. Now he's on trial for it. Um, but then you see uh, a lot of people coming out in support of Jesse Smollett. He's the greatest guy ever, which is yeah, besides the point. You can be a great guy and still make a big mistake. But uh, how do you guys see this thing playing out? Because this is a fascinating story. Yeah, it really is. And, uh, you know, as this has gone along, um, boy, the public got really carried for a ride on this and and people had initial thoughts and then you hear more about it the two brothers from uh the cast of empire came forward to say that no he gave us money to mm-hmm. um stage this and, and show that happened i mean it seemed to me odd f- from the beginning only because the the first thing you saw in this were images of jesse smollett at the uh police station still with the rope around his neck, mm-hmm. claiming that, you know, this had been what these guys did to me. They they right. attacked me with a rope and put a noose around my neck and made homopho- homophobic slurs and right. uh, racial slurs and attacked me for being gay and black. And and it's like, well, it just seemed odd that you it, left it check, the rope on your neck. It was, just, it, was so just, perfect. it was just a little odd. And then, of yeah. course, when these guys came forward and there was all kinds of video surveillance evidence against him, um, you know, it just fit the narrative of somebody who, for whatever reason, and, and we don't know what his reason it's was, certainly, yeah. decided that I'm going to put myself in the center of this and create this false narrative of me being the victim of uh, a hate crime in two separate categories of hate crime, one based on race and one based on sexual orientation. Yeah, and then to double down uh, when it looked like for a while there was an opportunity to go on the Oprah tour, which I mm-hmm. like to say is, yeah. you know, I'm sorry, tour. I'm wrong. Yeah. I, 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 I was trying to make a point. I was working on a, a play and I thought I'd acted out some, some story, you know, other than this, but apparently he and his very aggressive defense lawyer are going on the attack against these two brothers, uh, where there is video of Mr. Smollett kind of walked doing a dry walk yeah, run right. on this the this day the before story. there's text messaging and there's video w- from the um, store where they bought the rope i think yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, but, but what this case does show is something that has changed over the years a very subtle change in law enforcement many times after a, a serious heinous crime that's on tv you will see the chief of police the mayor surround and they'll say we have some interesting individuals. We have some people that we'd like to talk to. They know exactly who did oh, Of course, it. right. Yeah. Okay? So, number one, they don't want to make a mistake. That's right. But it's the rush to judgment defense that the defense lawyer is throwing out, that the, this investigator so quickly rejected Mr. Smollett's claim that he had been attacked and he had been uh, harassed and, and assaulted and just completely changed to Mr. Smollett being wrong so early in the game, which is not really the timeline that I see, and it's not the timeline that you often see. I mean, there's there's cases where the, the you know, the, the, cr- the criminal is dead at the scene <laughs> and they have his licenses on him so they know who it is. And, of course, the media says all that is released by the press release is an unknown person of interest whose body was found mm. potentially without a pulse at the scene of the crime. Well, they just don't want to make a mistake. And right. we defense lawyers, of course, it's a part of our menu. You know, did you didn't look into the brother-in-law. Or isn't it true that he was 60 miles away and you didn't try time to see how long it would take to traverse that amount? So that's that, – but it's not a really great defense, to be honest with yeah. you. But again, do I think there's a lot of resources behind Mr. Smollett's defense? I think there is. Do I think that they've game played or 
gone out to a storyline of what is the best defense. Now, that may be all that's left mm-hmm. because of the technology. And we've talked about that so many prior shows about yeah. pings from cell phones and videotape and cameras across the street at the ATM that basically you leave a lot of fingerprints that came up with the basketball players at milton high school right we, we exactly. with the whole snapchat and and uh, just the digital uh, pinging of the cell phone and the, on the on the uh the cell tower so yeah that shows up a lot and showing up here again i'm sure the uh tracking on the uh the porsche that uh yeah, you know, right. the, the kid took daddy's car to the scene of the murder all of that. It, yeah. it, it's it, it, There's so much out there. You know, I, I get this from clients who have been the victim of a rear-end car wreck that caused $1,800 of damage to their bumper and, and a minor injury, uh, and the person who hit them flees the scene. And they're like, why isn't the police tracking this guy down? I've got three letters of his tag, and, and I think I know the make and model, although it could be any number of burgundy sedans. Why aren't they tracking this down? There's, there's cameras on the uh, intersection where this happens. I look, buddy, um, I know this is a big deal, um, and certainly it's important to you. If you were dead and I were having this conversation with your spouse— I can assure you that the police would have tracked down every one of these things because it takes time, it takes resources, it's not the easiest thing in the world, but it can be done when the stakes are high enough. And so, yeah, in in a situation like the Milton High School uh, case, there's a dead body there, and the guy's got a cell phone in his hand, they're going to search through and do the analytics on that data and get everything they can get and everything around it. Had it been a guy just had been punched in the nose, None of that's going to take place. Well, I have a case pending right now. It's a civil lawsuit, and we're trying to serve the defendant process through a process server or through the sheriff. Well, he's just never home. Well, through a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend, uh, we were on his Facebook page, and we found where he's at, and we're getting him served because he's posting pictures, and we know exactly where he is, and and that's fine. It's just a civil lawsuit. He's not being arrested. We're gonna ha- my process server is gonna hand him the papers. He's gonna give it to his lawyers, and the case will then proceed. But people don't realize the electronic trail uh, that we're all leaving, whether it's through banking records. Uh, ATM, videotapes. I mean, I, I read something somewhere that you can literally walk if you know Manhattan Island from, uh, you know, what, what's the lowest point? To, at the, the battery. The battery. Yeah, yeah. battery you can park. walk past Central Park all the way up to Columbia and to Harlem, and you will be on a continuous video camera from one camera to the next to the next. I think the city of London has the most uh, surveillance cameras uh, in the world per density of population and you're only going to see more of it yeah who doesn't have i mean everyone that's out there listening uh in your neighborhood i assure you there's at least several of your neighbors that have those ring cameras i got one uh right yeah, so we do too. it's yeah. a bigger surprise really when the police don't have surveillance. some sort of video and, uh, and an example locally is the woman who was stabbed in piedmont park a few <clears throat> months ago um she killed her and the dog right and it was violent and perhaps she'd been followed and there's no surveillance from um an area where you think that there are there are any number of opportunities for surveillance not so much neighbors uh doorbells but cameras to be posted throughout the park that that to me was probably the biggest surprise model yeah and uh we just got a new mayor in the city of atlanta and uh mr dickens has that was part of his safe plan right is to have many many more cameras throughout the city of Atlanta, better lighting, but but more cameras to back up exactly well, what you're no saying. there's no question about it. I mean, as, as American cities uh, go through this absolute insane crime wave uh, that we're in the midst of now, and, and for all kinds of reasons, uh, you're going to see 
maybe, I mean, I'm old enough to remember a real law and order political surge of the late 60s, early 70s that catapulted Richard Nixon to the presidency and other things. Uh, and I think you're going to start to see that. And one of the responses that our local governments are going to make is buy more technology. Now, I like to see more police officers and better trained officers and and all that. But but technology is the cheapest way to fight crime or really to catch crime. Uh, the thing that's interesting is, you know, it's not really stopping crime. It's helping to solve crime. Mm-hmm. You can have the sign outside, you're on candid camera. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, they just yeah. come in anyway. I'm not sure and it's not stopping yeah. anybody. It, it's, it's not stopping flash mobs in nope. uh, San Francisco no from nope. busting into department stores. Um, but it is a deterrent to some and, and folks who perhaps value their freedom or think they're going to get away with whatever they Well, from the doing. back end, it assists in the prosecution. Yeah. And if, we, if prosecution is a deterrent, at least to that individual, yes, but uh, I haven't seen the ring camera stopping too many residential burglaries no, lately. Definitely I, not. I, I wish uh, the, our new mayor, Andre Dickens, the best of luck, and I hope he's successful in all this. One of the things I liked about his campaign is not only that he's talking about better ways to enforce the law and better ways to prosecute crimes, but really better services to try to reach out to the people maybe before they become criminals or feel that they have no other opportunity to to get ahead other than to commit crimes. And hopefully you'll see that sort of thing work. I mean, I, I live not too far away from Cheshire Bridge Road and what's gone on there in the last couple of years with the explosion of the number of folks who have no place to live and are living under the bridges um, and causing damage uh, on a pretty much regular basis, especially this time of year when it's freezing cold. Um, you know, you'd hope that there are other ways to try to um, address the problem of crime rather than just say we're going to arrest everybody. You know, let's let's see what we can do to try to deal with some of the underlying issues in education and services and everything else that maybe contribute to some of some of the crime. That we're well, having. I agree with you, Bruce. Uh, but, you know, uh, trout fishermen have a catch and release policy. So you catch it and then you release it and that creates more trout. But we have a catch and release policy in fighting crime in in most of this country, and it just ain't working. Now, I can give you a chapter and verse about the danger of things like three strikes and it's a felony when you committed three shoplifting felonies and you serve life in prison. That's wrong. I mean, we can we can agree on a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And I don't disagree with you that the better the educational system, the better the the services are, you're going to fight crime. But you know what? I would like to be able to park my car at any shopping mall over the next 30 days and come out an hour later and not have every window broken. Mm-hmm. I'd like to be able to think I can go out after night. I'm an, I mean, I'm kind of a target. I'm an older guy in a suit carrying a briefcase. I mean, that, that makes you a target yeah, in Metro yeah. Atlanta, sadly. And so uh, I think the catch and release, especially with the young criminals, uh, the young accused criminals has become a real problem. Yeah. And, and certainly um, having a more functional jail is part of yes. the city of Atlanta's problem, part of Fulton County's problem, part part of a national problem is that is that the jails don't really function well. Um, so so all of that I think is is part of this larger solution. The idea that the answer to all of it is we're going to build a wall and we're going to police around the wall and that's going to take Agreed. care of it. You know, it's funny the same folks who talk about their freedom uh, seem seem to think that the solution that's going to give them their freedom is a police state, and I, I don't see that yeah, as no, the solution to, to what we're dealing with in Atlanta or yeah. really anywhere. Yeah, I definitely don't want a police state, but I, I like having officers on the ground too because uh, I do believe that more officers, probably better trained officers, and 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 making yeah, sure that everybody better paid officers well, doing well, the I right mean, things. Yeah. Without getting 
getting too political. Yeah, sure. That's just not what we do here. Yeah. But, you know, I don't like to pay more taxes than I than I want to pay. But right now, if the governor or, or any of our elected officials said, here's the deal, it's another penny on your sales tax, but it's only going to law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Every cent of it. We're not, we're not putting it in a slush fund and we're not fixing the roads with it. That's the DOT's more. It's only going to law enforcement so we can recruit better officers, pay them a good wage so they're not taking you know, side jobs and they're tired, give them the best equipment, give them the best training, send them to the FBI training center up at Quantico. I want them to have, and, and, and let me expand that to all of our public safety people because sure. our firefighters and our EMTs, all those folks are yeah. just as important. Yeah, right. Yeah, I'd and, pay, and, pay it. And we're going to attract a higher quality yes. of candidate for these jobs too. And, and not just, you know, everywhere, uh, Departments are struggling to fill their ranks of police officers. And so what does that mean when you're struggling? It's sort of like, okay, our standards might slip a little bit mm-hmm. of who we are, we're willing to accept here because we need officers. Well, it also means who leaves. At, who right, leaves they leave to, to, the urban I, city police department to go to the nice suburban police department yeah. where they've got the newest of everything. You know, it's safer. They're not getting shot at or, every day. Or I can get I can get paid better as a mall cop. Uh, you know, and well, let corporate me go and security. Do that. And 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 so yeah, let's yeah. I, I think if you had the ability to pay folks better, you'll attract a better candidate. Um, you know, I'm I'm obviously stereotyping to a degree in all of this, but the folks I've known from my high school days who went on to careers in law enforcement, um, you know, weren't the ones who I would think, yeah, th- like, this is the guy who should have a badge out there mm-hmm. and a, a nightstick and a gun. I'll tell you, you that know, my experience th- on a day-to-day level in our court system, I'm not just saying this, that most of our law enforcement guys and gals are pretty dedicated professionals. Uh, most, uh, many have military background, which we not only honor, but respect because we didn't do it and they're trying but bruce they have been thrown into a cauldron of a a violent society a disrespectful you know group of people <laughs> you know the officer just pulled you up he's just asking you for your license man give him the license right. yeah. <laughs> I tell you all the time, it is a very hard job and, yeah. and, and none yeah. of us have a job where you're just Somebody walking up on a routine traffic stop as you approach here and you don't know what's waiting for you inside that car clayton yeah. county yeah. officer yeah. killed last night going yeah. to a domestic violence, which is the most dangerous. Mm-hmm. Ask anybody in law enforcement. They'd rather intercede in a bank robbery than a domestic violence situation because you don't know where the violence is coming from. Yeah. You know the bank robber is going to try to shoot you, yeah. but you go to a domestic violence, you, you don't know, know whether who. it's the husband, the wife, the child, the mom-in-law, the next-door neighbor. Somebody's violent. Right. Yeah. So getting back to Jesse Smollett, yeah. um, <laughs> what, what were we talking about? You digress, getting back Mr. to Jesse Hagen. Smollett, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting trial, and, it, and the case captured our attention for a lot of reasons, not just because he's an actor and it's so high profile, but if you think about it, you know, every time there's a false accusation, this is a great, you know, it it really just discredits the efforts of folks who are legitimately trying to fight things like being attacked for being gay, being attacked for being black, being attacked for being white, being just, just the hate crime victims. That's right. And, And when you come forward with this false narrative, it does so much damage. I mean, I remember, and Ray's old enough too to remember the Tawana Brawley situation in New York where she was a young girl who had disappeared and um, apparently what had come out eventually was that she had just been out with a boyfriend and was afraid to tell her stepfather that this happened because she was afraid she was going to get beaten for being out. So instead, she covered herself in garbage in a dumpster and and wrote, um, you know, anti-black 
racial epithets about it oh, and claimed wow. she was attacked by a white man. And it set New York on fire. And this is the case um, where Al Sharpton came to prominence. I mean, I'd never heard of Al Sharpton mm. before this, but he was a community organizer in that neighborhood. And, and he pushed her case. Pushed it, and, and, and so did everybody in the, in the community pushed it because this was so horrible. And right there in New York. And then it comes out months later that, no, this is not at all what it appears to be. After it became a national sensation, after Spike Lee is putting it in movies, um, and, you know, it, it does harm to the legitimate the genuine cause. Claims. It really Absolutely. does. And, and ju just like when folks make false accusations of sexual assault or sure. rape, you know, especially in today's world where I, I believe we're doing a better job of taking these claims more seriously and giving them credibility when they come in the false narrative that can come from just somebody who's got an agenda whatever it might be does so much harm to the legitimate claims that come forward and so here's a, a person in jesse smollett who is being taken to task and held accountable criminally for doing exactly that if if the state is right um, obviously, he has a right to defend himself in of court, and, and I assume, and Ray can back this up, that there were opportunities for these charges to have been um, pleaded out, and he could have accepted some sort of a deal if he'd chosen to. There were charges that were dropped against him, which was somewhat controversial because the state's attorney in Illinois in that area apparently had some relationship to the Smollett family. So there were accusations of insider deals and why the charges were dropped. But the charges that remain against him are for bringing this false claim to the police. Um, and they're going forward with what they have as the strongest case against mm -hmm. him right now. Yeah. 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 And I think that's smart on the prosecution's part. Uh, I've always really disliked it when prosecutors, even though they had probable cause or maybe even a, an indictment from the grand jury, to present a, the, the shotgun approach. You know, we're not sure which of these charges we can really prove beyond a reasonable doubt, but we'll put enough of them up. The jury will sort of split the difference and we'll get a conviction and we'll we'll punish this guy versus the this is what I can really prove beyond a reasonable doubt. I believe he did these other charges, but I don't think I have enough evidence. Let's dismiss them. The more targeted approach, uh, you know, sort of the bow and arrow approach. Uh, I think what will be interesting, and, and I hate to say this to the listeners, I don't know, what is the composite of this jury uh, racially? Question. I mean, that's been an issue in every single big profile case we've talked about. And again, that, that profile of, of who's on the jury pool is going to be critical to both the prosecution's preparation for trial and the defense preparation and for, again, the story that they tell on that day in court. And as we were talking about focus groups earlier in mock trials, the biggest part of that is to figure out, okay, what does our ideal juror look like? What, what is the profile of who we think is the right person for us to have in that 12-member jury, and how do we get there? And it's, it's, it's a real challenge. And I think the one thing everybody who's listening, you don't get a jury of your peers. Okay. You don't so get to review your yeah, and you, you don't, don't get, get to pick. You, you don't, don't get, get to pick, pick the ones you want. <laughs> you, you get stuck with the ones that are left. <laughs> That's right. But, but you know, we saw, again, with the, the trial of the uh, people who killed Ahmaud Arbery, um, the defense did their job of striking all the people of color from that trial. They had a white South jury, jur uh, South Georgia South jury. Georgia, yeah. That still came back with a conviction because the case was that strong and yeah. was that well tried by the prosecutor. It was very well tried by the prosecutor. So hands up, you know, hands up, hands out to her. She did a great job, and she did not fall for what some of the observers, and passionate as they may have been about how she should have tried the case, that it was a race case. She tried it as a murder case, right? 
yeah. that had race involved. Yeah. And that was brilliant on the yeah, prosecution so team, including the lead prosecutor. And we noticed yeah. it as we were watching because the contrast between that trial as it was taking place and the Rittenhouse trial was taking place is that in the Rittenhouse case, the consensus was this prosecutor is just blowing it. It seems seemingly doesn't know what he's doing, which the guy knows what he's doing, but but seemingly did a poor job of prosecuting that case compared with the excellent job that was done. And didn't by the know prosecutor. his judge. He didn't know his judge. People have criticized the judge, but the prosecutor went out of his way to, you know, if you stick out your chin in a boxing match, somebody's going to hit it. Hit it. Yeah. And every time he stuck out his chin, the judge decided to hit. Now, the judge, I, I, I thought he was pretty aggressive from the bench, but it's his courtroom. And every prosecutor in that courthouse knows, it's, you know, we all we lawyers, you know, what I've had lawyers call me, you've had lawyers call you, hey, I've got a case in front of judge fill in the blank tomorrow. What do you know about him or her? Hey, the last trial I had, she's great. She lets you get your evidence in. She won't let you put, you know, you can't sit in the juror's lap, but you get to try your case or, you know, micromanager mm -hmm. and, you know, wants to try the case himself. You know, former prosecutor doesn't think you're doing anything right. So it goes back to the old saying that a good lawyer knows the law and a great lawyer knows the judge. That's right. Yeah, there you go. When we come back on your day in court with Bruce Hagan and Ray Judice, we'll discuss the very sad story out of Michigan with the school shooting who the shooter is not cooperating with police are his parents what are his parents obligation what will come of this case we'll talk about it next on extra 106.3 the winningest team in baseball also has the most saves and people who save the most money are winners so start earning saves by investing in worthy bonds for only ten dollars each these bonds earn a fixed 7% APY, and there's no fees, penalties, or minimum balance required, and they can be redeemed whenever you like. You can even round up everyday purchases to buy additional bonds. Go to worthybonds.com backslash save. That's worthybonds.com backslash save, and save and win. Hey everybody, Buck Blue here, and as a recent customer of Jim Ellis Automotive and a longtime friend of the Vice President, Stacey Ellis, man, I know Jim Ellis Automotive Group takes pride in being a family-owned and operated business. I saw it firsthand. When Stacey's granddad, Jim Ellis, founded the company back in 71, his goal was to treat every customer like family by offering a car buying experience that was both easy and fully transparent. And it worked. 50 years later, Stacy's dad, Jimmy Ellis, grew the organization to become Georgia's largest family-owned and operated automotive group. And today, third-generation family members like Stacy, along with more than 1,700 dedicated team members, are working hard to uphold the values Jim Ellis Automotive was founded on. And that's why Jim Ellis has been around for over 50 years. Enjoy the advantages of buying your next vehicle from a family-owned and operated dealership. Visit JimEllis.com or stop by any of their 20 20 dealerships located throughout Metro Atlanta. Jim Ellis Automotive, where you can always expect the best. This is your day in court with Bruce Hagan and Ray Judice on Extra 1063. Your day in court with Bruce Hagan and Ray Judice. That's what you're listening to right now. My name is Doug Coward. This is Extra 1063. Our final topic is one of parental responsibility. What does a parent have to do when their kid has done something wrong? In the situation that we'll start with is the 15-year-old boy that's in custody after three students died and eight were injured last week at a high school in Oxford, uh, Michigan. 
right now the parents aren't cooperating. The student, the 15-year-old student, wasn't cooperating. What is the responsibility of a parent in this particular situation? Do you guys have a, a gut instinct, or is there some sort of legal precedent? They don't have to give up their constitutional rights or the constitutional rights of their child. Mm-hmm. Um, and even something as seemingly obvious as this, as the shooter mm-hmm. surrendering with the gun in his hand loaded yeah. and however many eyewitnesses and video cameras and yeah. cell phone video showing him shooting, they still don't have to give testimony against themselves and against the Their kid. son. Whether he's considered an adult eventually for this or a juvenile, they don't have to cooperate. The one thing that's come out early here is that the 15-year-old shooter was using a semi-automatic handgun that his father had purchased just days before this happened. Mm. And so could there be some additional separate criminal liability to the parents? Maybe. Um, These are things that will be investigated early on. But the very act of saying we're just not talking is an exercise of their constitutional rights. Yeah, and and reading the the many news releases, everybody seems in the news media is, well, why won't they help us find out the motive? Well, you don't need a motive, first of all. Motive is not uh, an element of most crimes especially a, a, a face-to-face shooting, you know, where I take a gun and shoot you in the head. I, you don't have to know why I did it unless you're trying to get the death penalty and you're trying to show, uh, you know, planning or scheme. Yeah. So the family doesn't have to cooperate. They don't have to help. Uh, as Bruce points out, it looks like from all we see is that the gun was legally purchased by the dad. Uh, and now, could there be some responsibility, depending on that state's law, if you don't have a gun locked up or in a safe and a minor gets it and commits a crime? There might be. But, you know, I've, I've always sort of railed against parents that buy their uh, 16-year-old, whose the ink is still wet on their driver's license, a uh, car with 500 horsepower. It's no and, less uh, of a deadly weapon. No less of a deadly that 16-year-old, weapon. 16-year-old, a, a, a muscle car or a exactly. big old Jeep or anything. Right, and, and, and throw them out on the highways and byways of our metropolitan area, and we see it happen all the time. And we see the unfortunate, you know, the, the post-prom wrecks where it's a brand-new car and kids are hurt. So so I think that that's part of the problem. We've got to separate out what our parents have responsibility civilly versus criminally. But, again, these folks have hired a lawyer. Uh, I would tell them to hire a lawyer. I'd tell them to come to my yeah. office and don't talk to anybody. And they have to be cautious about making statements that might be used against their child or, or against themselves. and uh, But what the motive is is almost irrelevant. That just mm. sort of satisfies, uh, you know, maybe or doesn't satisfy some people's claim as to why we have so many school shootings. And that may be helpful to prevent those things or a sociological study or a crime prevention study, but relevant to his case and his criminal charges, it's not all that relevant. So to your question, Tug, what can a parent do or should a parent do if their child has been accused of something? You don't have to talk. You don't have to cooperate. You may not destroy evidence. You may not facilitate hiding things, right? So if your child has text messages on their phone and you say, give me that phone, young man, and you start deleting messages that are on that phone, you may be destroying evidence and that's illegal. Some people have been known to take cars that have damage from hit and run type of crashes and immediately get rid of that car or claim the car was stolen or take it to a repair shop in another state or somewhere to try to hide the fact that the car has been damaged. All those things are crimes in and of themselves and subjecting now the parent to separate criminal liability that they 
probably wouldn't have had otherwise. Yeah, I think that's the real key is the obstruction charges that can come out of something like that. You can't take the car that was involved in a hit and run and drive it up to the FDR drive and set it on fire and then report it as stolen, which because that's insurance fraud. So, uh, so that's a big problem, but you don't have to assist either law enforcement or the school principal who calls you in because little Ray Ray broke every window at PS32, and but he won't admit to it, even though he used you know like his special Ray Ray rocks. <laughs> Put his name on every rock. <laughs> but I'm glad you brought that up because, I mean, obviously a school shooting is, is much different than probably what most parents are going to be accountable for their kids doing most often, especially if it's like, you know, throwing a rock or something like that. There are plenty of other things that happen that you can um, be uh, have to be responsible for your kids doing other than the school shooting that we've been, you know, that we started the conversation with because I think that's really, really important too. But um, I think parents genuinely want to do the right thing because it doing the right thing teaches your kids to do the right thing. Sure, but the instinct to protect is there very is that. strong and it's there and, and you think you can solve your child's problems for them even though they create the problems. Yeah. And it's one thing to say, well, you've you made your bed, now you're going to have to sleep in it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's another thing to say that you committed a crime, you're going to have to go to jail and I'm going to watch you go to jail and, and yeah. make sure this that you're punished that way. And, yeah. and uh, you know, I, I, part of me says I don't blame the parents, but I do blame the parents yeah. uh, in, in certain situations when they facilitate and try to then obstruct, obstruct law and obstruct the justice system by trying to fix things for their child by destroying evidence, hiding evidence and whatnot. And, and it comes up and, and again, my, my uh, realm in the legal world is mainly dealing with civil cases. We see a lot of cases involving young drivers causing crashes, you know, take your lumps, take responsibility for what you did and deal with it. Um, but when parents then facilitate by whatever they might do to try to say that it wasn't Junior's fault, you know, now you are encouraging this sort of behavior, you're furthering the problem and preventing justice from being served because it, your child's actions harmed somebody. Yeah. And if they're not accountable for that, then what's next? And I yeah. see it every spring graduation season, every prom season. We're going to have all the underage 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds come to our house. We're going to take their keys. They can drink here where it's safe, and we know. And then, of course, you know, Johnny sneaks out the back door after he's, he's had, you know, five Miller Lights or whatever and wrecks the car and kills somebody. And yeah. you thought you were doing the right thing, but you're furnishing alcohol to a minor inside of your house. Yeah. And that, that sets the wheels in motion, no sure. pun intended, for someone to get hurt or fall and hit their head. I mean, how many of these, and one of these days we need to do a story or a show on all of these fraternity uh, driven alcohol related yeah. deaths and hazing deaths that, that at the bottom line is just alcohol, alcohol, alcohol yeah. for young adults. But Ray brings up a great point and, and that um, fact pattern he gave of the adults providing the alcohol to the minors, whoever those parents were at that house, you might have the consent of the other parents who said, yes, please keep them at your house. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. matter. You, yeah. You've committed both a crime and you are very likely to be held civilly responsible for the harm that that drunk teenager has caused. And those actions may be outside, furnishing alcohol may be outside of your insurance policy. Wow. Insurance yeah, policy covers about. negligence, mistakes, doesn't cover criminal behavior. There you go. All right, so to all the uh, doctors and uh, tech millionaires and uh, Bitcoin uh, gazillionaires <laughs> right. that are listening, um, your money and your resources are all on the table when you break the law in that kind of a way. There you go. This is your day in court on Extra 106.3. In case folks need some help 
But they've come into a, a legal situation that they can't figure out on their own, which is most often. Bruce, how do they get a hold of you? It's easy to find me. Bruce Hagen, H-A-G-E-N, Hagen-Law.com is the website. Bruce at Hagen-Law.com. You can call me 404-522-7553. People are there anytime, and uh, we can help you out with whatever you need. There you go, Ray. Yeah, Ray Judice, JudiceLaw.com, 404-964-4185. The winningest team in baseball also has the most saves, and people who save the most money are winners. So start earning saves by investing in worthy bonds for only $10 each. These bonds earn a fixed 7% APY, and there's no fees, penalties, or minimum balance required, and they can be redeemed whenever you like. You can even round up everyday purchases to buy additional bonds. Go to worthybonds.com backslash save. That's worthybonds.com backslash save, and save and win. Hey everybody, Buck Blue here, and as a recent customer of Jim Ellis Automotive and a longtime friend of the Vice President, Stacey Ellis, man, I know Jim Ellis Automotive Group takes pride in being a family-owned and operated business. I saw it firsthand. When Stacey's granddad, Jim Ellis, founded the company back in 71, his goal was to treat every customer like family by offering a car buying experience that was both easy and fully transparent. And it worked. 50 years later, Stacy's dad, Jimmy Ellis, grew the organization to become Georgia's largest family-owned and operated automotive group. And today, third-generation family members like Stacy, along with more than 1,700 dedicated team members, are working hard to uphold the values Jim Ellis Automotive was founded on. And that's why Jim Ellis has been around for over 50 years. Enjoy the advantages of buying your next vehicle from a family-owned and operated dealership. Visit JimEllis.com or stop by any of their 20 dealerships located throughout Metro Atlanta. Jim Ellis Automotive, where you can always expect the best. Spring is here and baseball is back. You can't forget the Derby. I love the hats. Do you have yours yet? My hat? I treated myself to a whole outfit. If you want to be able to treat yourself, then you should check out the Nest Savings Account at LGE Community Credit Union, where they want you to reach your savings goals faster. Take it from a pair of 680 The Fan wives. Head to lgeccu.org to find out what makes their team number one in Georgia. 